Thank you, John. Hey, is uh, anybody enjoying the Olympics so far? Oh, ooh, okay, guess not. All right, football season is coming up next month, so uh, I'll, I guess this is a football crowd. So I, for one, love the Olympics because those of you who know me uh, know that I follow track and field very closely. I'm one of the seven people uh, in the world who follow track and field is the, uh, very closely. Uh, so I'm in, my I'm in the zone. I, I, love, I love the Olympics. I mean, I'm waking up at 6 a.m. every day and staying up late at night to watch, uh, you know, on Tokyo time zone. But uh, I love track and field, but also I'm, I'm just a sports guy in general. I love sports. Um, and if you're a sports fan, you are familiar with the term, the dreaded term, rebuilding year. You know, if you're a fan of a team, nobody wants to hear rebuilding year. Uh, if you're not a sports fan, let me explain what a rebuilding year is. Uh, a rebuilding year usually comes after a star player on the team is traded or retires or, usually, or sometimes when a team gets a new coach. And a rebuilding year is a year where the fans and the media essentially give the team a, a lot of grace. And even though they're not going to win a lot of games, you don't see a lot of newspaper articles about how the fight coach should be fired or the players should be benched. In a rebuilding year, you give the team a lot of grace, and during that year, the coaches, the front office, and everything, what they're doing is they're evaluating the team, evaluating the strengths, evaluating the weaknesses, and they're making a plan to rebuild the team so that the team can be competitive in the future. And rebuilding years are not fun. I mean, the Jets have been rebuilding for a couple of decades now. Um, but, uh, but often, rebuilding years are necessary. You've got you've to admit it sometimes that the team needs to be rebuilt, and you've got to trade players away and bring in new coaches and test new ideas and evaluate the team so that you can rebuild to be competitive down the road. A year of accepting reality, grieving whatever losses you've accrued, but then making a plan to get to work and become a better team. And sports teams have rebuilding years every so often. But I think we should give ourselves grace to have some rebuilding years in our lives as well. And I think 2021 is a rebuilding year for most of us. I mean, it is 16 months after the start of COVID. Some of us just need a rebuilding year, right? <laughs> Perhaps you are looking to rebuild your life after the loss of a loved one in the last couple of years or the last year and a half. Maybe you're trying to rebuild your marriage or a relationship that's been strained or broken. Uh, maybe you're rebuilding friendships because we all know someone that has moved out of the city in the last year and a half, and that's hard when we lose friends. Maybe you're rebuilding your career or your business because this has been a hard year and a half on your business. Maybe you're rebuilding your finances because you blew through all your savings during the pandemic. Maybe you're, maybe you're just trying to rebuild your reputation after a stupid decision or a failure that you've had. I've been there. Maybe you're trying to rebuild your health after suffering from COVID, or simply you're just trying to rebuild your life after a weird year. Some of you are trying to rebuild your faith. Your faith, you drifted, and you're going, man, I just want to get back to that place where my faith is strong. COVID is it's like weakened my faith. Our church, this is a rebuilding year for us. This is going to be a rebuilding year for us. This has been a hard 16 months for our congregation. God has been so gracious to our church, but it's still been really hard. And there are some things in our church that need to be rebuilt after 16 months of dealing with COVID and 
remote worship and then worshiping with all these restrictions. And there are just some things that need to be rebuilt. And the question for us is, what does a rebuilding year look like for us? What does it look like for you? And, and if you're a Christian, you ought to be asking, does the Bible, is there any wisdom in the scriptures that we can glean on how to rebuild our lives after tragedy or after loss or after a tough year? And so today, I want to answer that question and say, yes, there is wisdom in the Bible. And I want to introduce you today to the book of Nehemiah. Anybody ever read the book of Nehemiah? Okay, a couple of hands. If you're doing our Bible reading plan, you read it uh, in the last month. Um, but if you haven't read Nehemiah, that's okay. It's kind of tucked in the, uh, the Old Testament. You may not be familiar with it, but I promise you, you're going to love it over the next couple of weeks. But Nehemiah, it's a book about rebuilding. I mean, there is so much wisdom that we can take from the life of Nehemiah. It is a book about Nehemiah rebuilding broken walls and rebuilding a city that is in ruins. And God has preserved this book for our benefit, I believe, so that we can know how to rebuild things when they're broken in our lives. And I believe now is a great time for us to study this book together. So let's start Nehemiah right now. Nehemiah chapter 1. It begins like this, and trust me, you're going to be like, this doesn't sound fun in the, with the first words that come out of my mouth. Trust me, it gets better. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. You're like, what? Okay, one, it's one of these. The son of Nehemiah, or ne the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. What's going on right here is Nehemiah, he says, hey, these are my words. We're about to read Nehemiah's memoir about the time he rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem after they had crumbled. It says, now it happened in the month of Chislev in the 20th year. As I was in Susa, the citadel, then Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble, and they're in great shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. And then if you look down at verse 11, he says, I was the cupbearer to the king. So here's what's going on right now. You're like, you said this is going to be fun. I'm going to get wisdom. What just? What did I just read? Let me tell you. Le Nehemiah, in your Bible, it's kind of, it's right there before the Psalms and everything. We, we organize our Old Testament by categories. So uh, we kind of put history on the front end. This is a historical book. Uh, and so we organize our Bible by categories. But if you were to organize it chronologically, as it happened, Nehemiah is actually the last book of the Old Testament. So this is happening at the very end of the Old Testament. So I want to give you a two-minute uh, two summary of the Old Testament. You know when you watch a new season of a television show, they give you the 90-second summary of like the last six seasons or whatever? That's what I want to do right now, a two-minute summary of the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, God chose the people of Israel to be his chosen people. He said, I will bless you. I will bless the world through you. This was God's plan to bless the world through the nation of Israel, and he would bless the people of Israel. And God made a covenant with them. He said, listen, if you honor me and if you worship me, I will bless you. I will give you a land. I'll give you a name. I'll give you renown. I'll give you strength. I'll give you power. And I will be a light to the world through you if you worship me and if you honor me. But... God said in, in his covenant to the people of Israel, he said, but if you turn your back on me and if you worship other gods, I will never forsake you, but there will be judgment and I will allow you to be conquered and exiled. And you go, well, what happened? They did exactly that. The, I mean, it is, I mean, 
that they disobeyed and they turned their back on God and they worshiped other gods. And God was gracious and he was slow to anger, but they turned their back on him and turned their back on him and turned their back on him. And finally, he said, I am slow to anger, but I told you, if you turn your back on me, there will be judgment and there will be exile. And that's exactly what happened. And so God allowed the people of Israel to be conquered by the Assyrians. And they were taken out of Jerusalem and they were put into captivity. And then they were conquered again by Babylon and then they were conquered again by Persia. And when you get to the book of Nehemiah, they've been out of Jerusalem for over a hundred years. They're now conquered by the Persians. And there's a small remnant of Israelites who escaped Persia. They've left Persia and they've returned to Jerusalem. But they're really struggling. The city is in ruins. The, wall, the walls have been destroyed. And you're like, I know it's 2021, and, you know, when we talk about building a wall, you know, we think of one thing. Uh, don't, don't think of that way, okay? Walls were super necessary for cities in, uh, in the, in, uh, back in this time because walls were so important. They protected the city. They allowed a, a, a city to build their own culture, to, it allowed their families to thrive and for them to grow economically. But Jerusalem, when they, had been when they had been conquered, their walls were destroyed, and the people were in shame. And not only that, God's name was being shamed. Because all of the outsiders were saying, look, you worship this God. You say your God is the God of the universe. You say your God is the God of heaven. But how? Well, he has not protected you. Your walls are on the ground. You guys are, this is nothing. And so the people of Israel were, they were in shame, and their God was being disrespected. And by the time our story begins, one author says, the political, social, and spiritual conditions in Jerusalem were deplorable. Now, Nehemiah, it says in verse 11, was the cupbearer to the king. That means that he had climbed up the ranks in Persia, even though he was Jewish, even though he was an Israelite, he had climbed up the ranks and into a place of influence and to a life of luxury. He was essentially the second, the right-hand man to the king. To, and, and the book of Nehemiah begins, Nehemiah receives word from his brother. And his brother is telling him all about the situation in Jerusalem. He says, look, Nehemiah, the city is in shambles and the people are struggling. Our people are struggling. And the book of Nehemiah is the, book, is the story of what Nehemiah does after hearing about this problem. And against all odds and against great opposition, Nehemiah is going to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem and revive the city in 52 days. Pretty cool, right? So we're going to listen to what Nehemiah has to say. He brings renewal and revival to the people of God. Nehemiah is the book we need right now because there are broken walls in our lives, and we want, by God's grace, to see those walls rebuilt. And Nehemiah is going to show us the way. And there's a lot of wisdom in here for us. So let's continue. Verse 4. It gets a little cooler now, okay? Verse 4. As soon as I heard these words, Nehemiah says, I sat down and I wept and I mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O oh Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love for those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We've acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded to your servant Moses. Remember, though, the word that you commanded to your servant Moses, 
saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. These are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant me mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was the cupbearer to the king. First thing we learn about rebuilding from this this first chapter of Nehemiah, if if you're here today and there's something in your life that needs to be rebuilt, the first thing you can learn is this. You've got to accept reality and feel the feelings, all right? Verse 4, it says, As soon as I heard this, this message from my brother, I sat down, I wept, and I mourned for days. If you notice, there's, and then he says he began praying. And if, and if you look at here, there's a process of grief here. Nehemiah hears the report, and I love that it says he sat down, which implies to me that he, he, he takes it in. You know when somebody says, hey, I want to tell you something, uh, but you need to sit down first. You're like, uh-oh. <laughs> what are they saying? They're saying, hey, you need to be prepared. You're going to hear something difficult, and you're going to need to accept it if you want to do anything about it. Nehemiah hears this awful news about the people of God, and he sits down. Notice he doesn't deny the reports. or He doesn't minimize them. Oh, we'll be fine. We'll be fine. It's not, it can't be that big of a deal. We'll be all right. We'll be all right. He accepts the reality of the struggles of his people. He doesn't distract himself. He doesn't shift the conversation. Uh, he doesn't change the subject. He doesn't numb out with distraction. He doesn't turn Netflix on and go, you know what, I'm just going to go uh, veg out for you know, a little bit, and then I'll think about this tomorrow. He, he sits down and he receives it. And he accepts the reality of the situation. And then it says he wept and he mourned for days. He hears awful news and he responds appropriately. I don't know about you, but when I hear awful news, I don't always have the maturity of Nehemiah. <laughs> when I hear painful news, uh, or when I come to a painful realization in my life, my tendency is either to go straight into denial mode. Anybody been there? You're like, this is not happening, or this is not as bad as it seems. It'll be fine if I just don't think about it. It'll all work out. Or often, I will immediately, when I hear bad news, I'll try to distract myself or I'll numb my feelings. I try to soften the burden by moving on to something trivial, usually scrolling on my phone or watching television or going to the fridge. Come on, anybody? (laughs) Or sometimes if somebody tells me something hard in a conversation, I'll either make a joke, something sarcastic, I'll make light of it, or I'll change the subject. And when I do those things, I'm not accepting reality. I'm not accepting reality, and I'm not feeling what I need to feel. But one of the things I've learned in my life is that you can't deny or minimize real problems and hope they go away. They're not going to go away. Those problems in your marriage, pretending they're not there is not going to fix your marriage. You've got to accept the reality, and you've got to feel the feelings. If you want to make a real change in your life, you've got to accept reality, feel the proper emotions before you can develop the resolve to rebuild what is broken. I told you I'm a big fan of track and field. The reason is I ran track and field all through high school and college. And when I was a freshman in high school, uh, my track team, we finished in second place at the state championship meet. And we lost by one point. 
we lost. Do you guys remember, sports fans, do you guys remember who Jamarcus Russell was, number one pick in the NFL draft by the Oakland Raiders? He was a huge bust, but he was, he was incredible. He was on the team that beat us. If you've ever seen, I mean, that guy throwing a javelin was one of the most incredible things you've ever seen. But we got beat by a team that was led by the future number one pick in the NFL draft and a guy who would go on to be the number one ranked 400-meter runner in the United States. They beat us by one point. And we're a bunch of high school boys. We're on the bus ride home, and we were devastated. But we were also trying to act tough, right? So we're trying not to cry. You know, we're trying to hold it together. But then we're also kind of like blaming, you know, you're, it was sulking. But I mean, you're also kind of blaming people. You're like, man, if he had just thrown his shot put just a, two inches further, he would have finished this place, and we, we would have won. Or if he would have run just a little bit faster or jumped a little higher. We, and we're blame-shifting, and we're sulking, and we're complaining, and we're trying to be tough, and we're trying not to feel it. You know what I mean? And I remember halfway down the road, one of our assistant coaches stands up and stands in the middle of the aisle in the bus, and he says, boys, I want you to feel how bad this feels. He says, guys, you've got to feel how bad this feels. I want you to feel your frustration because I want you to remember and feel how awful it is to lose, especially by one point. And he said, boys, if you need to cry, let it out. But you need to feel this. And you had this moment <laughs> where you had all these hormonal teenage boys in the back of a bus. We're all crying. We're hugging each other. Man, I let you down, man. I'll never let you down again. I'm going to train twice as hard next year. We're going to do this. We're going to come back. And you're like, it's funny, but it was a super healthy moment for us. I mean, because there was a camaraderie that was forged in that moment. We also felt the sting of the loss. We didn't bury it, you know, deep in our kind of teenage boy, tough guy persona. We felt it. And we won the next three state championships. You can clap right there for us. So, see, we never forgot it. We never forgot what it felt like to lose because we took the time to feel the feelings. And listen, the state championship, high school state championships are meaning trivial in the long run of life. And many of you are facing real things that need to be rebuilt, and you've got to accept reality when life is hard and feel the appropriate feelings. Some of you have been denying the pain for far too long. Some of you have been distracting yourselves and numbing yourself for far too long, and you need to own the problem. Whatever walls in your life have crumbled over the last two years, if you really want to get to work rebuilding your life, you need to accept that it happened, feel what you need to feel so that you can rebuild and move on. And let me tell you what I think we all collectively as a church need to accept and feel. I know we've got a few new faces in the room, um, this afternoon, but I kind of want to just talk to, I want to talk to our people right now. Uh, we haven't really talked about this much. Uh, I've, I think as a pastor over the last year and a half, I've tried to keep morale and energy up, but we need to embrace reality as a church. Uh, the truth is this, COVID has been tough on our congregation. Uh, there's some rebuilding in our church that needs to happen in the days ahead, but we need to feel it first, Okay. Listen, in the last 16 months, New York City has seen countless numbers of churches close their doors and cease to exist. Uh, COVID has placed a lot of pressure on churches, and not all of them have survived. Um, I can name several churches that were pastored by close friends of mine that in March of 2020 were healthy and growing and vibrant and strong, but they don't exist today because of the strain that COVID put on their church. Financial strains, the strain of people leaving the city, 
all the strain of being digital and all of that stuff. There are churches that haven't made it. And I say that to say that I'm so unbelievably grateful to God that not only has Crossroads survived, but we're doing pretty good. All things considered, God has sustained us. We're still here. We're still a healthy church. We still have a great leadership team. We're still reaching people. We're still seeing people come to faith. We're still baptizing people. And I'm so grateful for the ways that God has continued to bless us during this really hard season. However, we need to accept the reality that we've taken some heavy blows. A lot of people from our church have moved away in the last 16 months. Some of them, my close friends. That's hard. Losing friends is hard. And some of the families that have moved away and some of the people that have moved away are key volunteers, key leaders in our church, great people who we all love and we miss seeing their faces in church. And they served our church so well. And it's, it's okay to admit that it's painful that they're not here right now. Another thing that, that we need to accept, some people in our church have just drifted away. Like, as far as I can tell, they're still in the city, but we just haven't heard from them. Our pastors and our deacons, we've reached out to them, and we haven't heard anything from them. We don't know how they're doing. That's heartbreaking. Some of our people, your lives have been so upended in the last 16 months that you're just weary right now. And you're like, I don't have anything to offer right now, and that's okay. But I just want you to say that as a church, we grieve with you and we grieve for you that we've got hurting people in our church. Again, I'm so grateful for how God has been gracious to our church, but I look out today and there are less than half of the people in this room that were a part of our church in March of 2020. That's a lot of loss. And we need to feel that if we're going to rebuild. And we're going to rebuild, amen? But we need to feel it. We need to feel that. The truth is we've got volunteer gaps that need to be filled as we move into the fall if we want to continue serving the poor and serving our kids and serving our ministries. Listen, our finances, while we've readjusted our budget multiple times over the last couple of years uh, and we're staying within our means and we're still viable and sustainable, there's still a lot of things that we used to be able to do that we can't do today because of finances. We're making budget for the year but we're still about $50,000 behind where we were this time last year. We need to accept that. We need to grieve that. We've readjusted our budget to go align with that. We're not being irresponsible. But we do grieve that we don't have the resources that we had this time 16 months ago. Also, COVID, and one thing we need to accept and grieve is that COVID has disrupted many of our mission partnerships. And I, I, we haven't seen our friends from the Guild for Exceptional Children in a, almost two years. You know, if you don't know what the Guild is, it's, a, it's a, uh, an organization that serves adults with developmental disabilities in our community. And our churches over the last several years have had a great partnership where we serve them, throw parties for them. We haven't got to see them in two years. I grieve that. We, haven't, we had to cancel a mission trip to the Dominican Republic to go serve our community where we sponsor 18 children and where we're, helping, we're partnering with them to rebuild to build a well in their community that's going to provide jobs, that's going to provide clean water, that's going to provide hope for a bunch of kids trying to get out of poverty and make something of their lives. And we, we had to cancel that trip. I grieve that. And I grieve that we haven't been able to partner with them on the same level that we hoped. COVID also, uh, I mean, 
because of our funding, we're not as we're not able to invest as much in church planting and other local ministries as we have in the past. I grieve that. COVID has revealed how vulnerable we are as a church without a permanent facility of our own. We moved from the high school to here to online. You know, we're just bouncing around. We need a place of our own, and we're dreaming big that God's going to provide that through your generosity and through his favor. Listen, I'm not saying any of these things to make us feel bad. I'm saying these things because it's reality. And I still believe that God has incredible plans for our church, plans to help us rebuild for the sake of his glory and for the good of our neighbors. And if we want to rebuild, it's okay for us to admit that COVID has wounded us a little bit. We can sit down and we can feel it. The same goes for whatever's grieving you right now, whatever broken walls, broken marriages, broken relationships, broken career, finances, faith. It's okay to grieve. But the scriptures tell us that we don't grieve like those without hope. We channel our grief into the hope that we have in our God. And that's the second thing I want you to see here. And I'm running quick on time, so I'm not going to be able to do all of this. Joe, you're following my notes. I'm going to do the abridged version of this. But after we've accepted reality and felt the feelings, we need to channel our grief and our discontent into prayer. Nehemiah is a book full of prayers. In fact, books have been written on the prayers of Nehemiah. And in this first prayer, Nehemiah essentially, let me give you the summary outline of what he does. He owns his responsibility in the, in, the, in the shame of Jerusalem. He says, we've sinned against you, God. We were exiled because we sinned, and you told us it would happen. You told us that if we rebelled against you, we would be exiled, and we did, and you kept your word. So he owns the problem, but then he holds God's promises back up to him. He says, but you also said, God, that if we return to you, you will redeem us and you'll restore us. And so, God, I am turning back to you and I'm going to lead our people to turn back to you. And if we turn back to you, God, you have to redeem us and you have to deliver us because you made a covenant and you have always been true to your word. And I'm claiming on your promises and believing that you will be true to your word. He claims the promises of God. And some of us today, that's what we need to do today. We need to claim the promises of God, that God is for us, not against us. He is for our good. He knows the plans he has for our life. And any bit of pain that we've experienced over the last 16 months, it did not catch God by surprise. And his promises are still sure and they still stand that God is for us, that he is not against us, that he is preparing a life for us if we walk in obedience to him. And so we need to hold up the promises of God and say, God, we believe that you are building this church, that you are building my life, and we're going to pursue you believing that you keep good on your promises. And then Nehemiah, he closes his prayer. This is the third. So we channel our discontent and grief into prayer. But then the final thing we see in Nehemiah's uh, prayer is that we need to seek God's favor as we get to work. In verse 11, Nehemiah says, God, I'm praying the walls of Jerusalem have been destroyed, and God, we need your favor to rebuild these. And he says, God, give me success. So this is what Nehemiah says. He says, God, I'm leaving Persia. I'm going back to Jerusalem. I'm going to start raising money. I'm going to start rallying people, and I'm going to start rebuilding those walls. I need you to give me success, God. And what I love about Nehemiah is that Uh, he doesn't pray weak and passive prayers. You see, often we pray these prayers where we're like, 
It's like we're asking God to do something while we just sit back and watch. But all throughout the scriptures, what you see is God works through his people, getting to work, not passive people waiting for God to do it. They say, we are going to seek the kingdom of God, and God, we're going to ask for your favor as we do this, because we can't do it without you, but we're getting to work. And so Nehemiah says, I'm going to rebuild those walls, God. I need your favor to do it because it'll never happen without you. Nehemiah doesn't say, hey, God, hopefully there's somebody in Jerusalem that can rebuild those walls. God, would you send somebody to Jerusalem to rebuild those walls? Or God, would you just miraculously rebuild those walls? Nehemiah says, no, I'm going. And listen, if our church is going to be rebuilt, it takes all of us saying, not saying, man, I just wish God would do something about our church. It takes us all going, we're going to rebuild this church. And we're going to see people come to faith through Crossroads. And we're going to see this city restored and redeemed and renewed through the work of Crossroads by God's favor on us. If you want something in your life rebuilt, your marriage, your finances, your career, it's not going to happen simply by you saying, God, why don't you just do something about this? It's going to happen by you saying, God, I'm going to obey you. I'm going to do what you say, but I'm asking for your favor to rebuild these things as I get to work. So three things we learn from Nehemiah. Accept reality and feel the appropriate, appropriate feelings. Channel your grief and your discontent into prayer, and then seek God's favor as you get to work. And we're going to get to work, amen, as a church. We're going to get to work. This church has been through way worse, okay? <laughs> uh, this church has been through all sorts of things. We're going to see this church rebuilt for the glory of God and for the good of our neighbors. And we're going to ask God's blessing on us as we seek to see those things happen. But also, God, we're going to ask for God's favor on your life as you seek to rebuild the broken pieces of your life. And we believe that God is good and he's faithful to his promises and he will give you favor as you seek to rebuild. So Nehemiah, it's a book about rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. And spoiler alert, he does it in 52 days, actually. And the walls never would have been rebuilt without the initiative of Nehemiah himself. He was living in a place of luxury a place of power and a place of influence. But when he heard of the suffering of his people, he left his place at the right hand of the king and he moved into the city where the people were suffering and he led them in renewal and rebuilding. There's a lot we can learn from Nehemiah. Where would the people of Israel have been without Nehemiah? There's a lot we can learn from him. But Nehemiah points us something to greater than himself. It was Jesus who sat at the right hand of God the Father in heaven for all eternity. He sat at the right hand of the Father, the ultimate place of honor and authority, but for the joy that was set before him. Philippians 2 says that he emptied himself. He emptied himself of his power and his authority, and he became like us. He came to earth, left his place in heaven, entered our struggle, died our death to bring us renewal and rebuild and resurrect our broken lives. Nehemiah was pretty awesome. But what Nehemiah rebuilt physical walls, but Jesus came and he rebuilt our lives and gave us new life. And rebuilding your life after COVID may seem like an impossible task. And rebuilding our church after COVID may feel like an impossible task. But we worship a God who is a God of resurrection and rebuilding. That is what he does. So we trust him and we move forward in hope. Let me pray for us, Crossroads. Father in heaven, we thank you for your mercy. And we appeal to your mercy today, God. We 
We own reality, God. It's been a hard year. There are many struggling people in this room. Our church as a whole, we've, we've faced some hard challenges because of COVID. And today, God, we're, we're not numbing ourselves of the, the wounds. We're not distracting ourselves or trivializing all that our church has gone through. God, it's been a hard year and a half, and we know that we're not the only church struggling. God, we know that almost every church is struggling. And so we lift up all the people of God in this city today, all the congregations in this city today, and we say that, God, there are some walls that are broken among your church here in this city, and we are trusting you to rebuild those walls, and we are partnering with you, and we are joining with you to see those walls rebuilt for your glory and for the good of our neighbors. So, God, give us favor. Give us favor as we seek to rebuild our lives, we seek to rebuild our church, we seek to rebuild our city and our world. Give us favor as we get to work. God, we commit to being obedient to you. And we trust your promises that if we walk in your way, you will guide our path and you will provide for us. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.